Welcome to the What She Said podcast. My name is Candace Sampson. I am currently in the middle of divorce proceedings, working towards my psychology degree, dating for the first time in 20 years, raising three teenage girls, a senior dog, and two guinea pigs. And in the middle of all this, I thought it would be a good time to buy the What She Said media property. What could possibly go wrong? I've been in the trenches with women across Canada for over a decade now, oversharing on the Yummy Mummy Club, Life in Pleasantville, and on all my social media pages, and I totally do it for the gram. And now I'm coming to you on the radio at 105.9 The Region and on this podcast. Apparently, I have a lot to say. So let's get rolling. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And when it comes to racism and the fight for equal rights, it is sadly all too true. We need only look back on history to see flashpoints of civil unrest followed by promises of change in action, and then everyone slipping back into the roles they're comfortable with. Well, at least the roles white people are comfortable with. In this podcast, I interview Ruth Goba and Nana Yanfel from the Black Legal Action Center in Toronto. It is very enlightening, but the most heartbreaking part of this for me is when I ask Ruth and Nana if they feel this moment is different. Listen for their answer, but most importantly, hear what they have to say about Black racism in Canada. I mean, really let it sink in, and then ask yourself if you can commit to making sure we don't allow ourselves to slip back to the status quo. Personally, I can't unlearn what I've learned in the last two weeks about systemic racism, and I don't want to. In the words of Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. So meet Ruth and Nana from the Black Legal Action Center who were gracious enough to spend some time with me this week. Hi, Ruth and Nana. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I realize that this has got to be an absolutely crazy week for you, so I really appreciate the time you're giving me today. Thank you so much for reaching out to us and for, for having us on. <laughs> Thank you. So I think the first thing I want to ask you, um, you know, we saw Justin Trudeau this week acknowledge that, you know, there's racism in Canada, something we all know. But then, you know, um, Legault and um, uh, Ford came out and said that there is no systemic racism. So how would you respond to them? I think that, I mean, I, yeah, I think that what they need to do is actually just look at um, statistics and numbers and data around disparity, the disparity of the black community in all areas of life, whether it be education with suspensions and expulsions, um, access to healthcare and good healthcare that we're seeing now in the context of COVID, um, in policing where uh, black people are 20 times more likely to be killed by the police, um, in housing where people face um, you know, insecure housing and lack of, you know, an, an inability to secure good housing because of race. And then, of course, the labor market that entrenches levels of poverty because of um, underemployment, unemployment, and um, 
you know, kind of failure to, you know, promote and, and give people opportunities when they're in, when they're employed. I think if you look at all of those things, there's no question that there are systemic issues at play here uh, related to anti-black racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, it's funny, I, I, you, you said something there, you know, look at the numbers. And I think I'm a big fan of science and, and data. And it, you're right. I think the, the initial reaction is, is taken personally. Well, no, it can't be. But if you look at what the numbers say, it certainly is there. So do you have some of those numbers, you know, aside from the policing, um, some of those numbers you can share? Um, so, so I think black women make, I think, 30, 37% less um, in income than white men. Um, child poverty rates are 18% for the general white Canadian population. For if you disaggregate, for, or no, actually child poverty rates across the country are 33%. If you disaggregate the data for black children, it's 33%. And if you disaggregate it further, um, black children with parents from Africa, African from the African are, it's 47%. Um, incarceration rates, Nana, I don't know. What, like, I think it, it, yeah, in federal prison, in federal prison, for example, we are uh, one of the fastest growing populations in, in federal corrections. Um, we're overrepresented um, about three or four times in the provincial system, especially for young black men, overrepresented at the provincial system um, in corrections. Also at the federal system, if you go back, then black women are also one of the fastest growing populations. So um, there was a 71% increase in black people in the, in the prison population between 2005 and 2015. Mm-hmm. That's a tremendous increase. Yeah. So um, I think and- that a lot of people are probably going to be, you know, I, I'm guilty of this. Well, we're not American. That is a, yeah, that is, that is one of the hardest challenges that I think Nana and I have to deal with in the other stuff in the office is getting people to recognize that the systemic issues here are really no different to those in the United States. We are better at concealing them, trying to conceal them. We are better at not talking about them. Um, And so, you know, we try and impress upon people all the time that um, Canada and Ontario has a history of slavery, has a history of segregation, right? Um, that manifests in current ways today. And Nana can speak more, I'm sure, about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm always so shocked that that's the first thing people want to say, right? Is, well, it happens there, it doesn't happen here. And I, I do think that there is something about white privilege that exists in. Canada, that's very specific. I mean, even the comments made that you mentioned by, you know, Lego and um, Ford, like, to me, that means that you have never, (laughs) you have never encountered, you know, a racialized person or a black person. That means you've never had to experience, um, you know, the things that our community has to go through. That's, that's an example of privilege, right? If you have no clue at the potential disparities um that says something about privilege and i think that's what is happening in canada we have been so um 
indoctrinated with this idea of diversity and multiculturalism and it's our strength. And that then makes any kind of uh, discussion around potential disparities um, quite mute, right? So we have to kind of chip away at that. And I think the recent events that's, that have been happening in the world across borders have been a really good example that, you know, anti-Black racism knows no bounds, right? So, so let's, um, let's talk yeah. about that a little bit, just because this moment to me, you know, I remember Rodney King and L.A., you know, exploding into riots and, you know, and it keeps, it kind of happens, but something about this moment feels different. Do you feel that? Or do you feel people are just going to fall back to status quo again? What do you think? (laughs) Truth be told, I feel like people are going to fall back to the status quo. You know, Because it's comfortable, right? Like that, that's comfortable space for people. Yeah. I think one of the most frustrating things about our work is the fleeting nature with which people get involved in the issue Mm -hmm. of anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. It's very sexy to talk about anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. um, But when it comes to substantive change, um, that's really hard work. And what we find is that people are not always really willing to do that work. And so what we say, what I say certainly is, you know, talking about it and even recognizing it doesn't change it. There has to be mm-hmm. accountability where, um, where, it, where, the, where, where there are perpetrators, right? Um, there has to be accountability, whether that be teachers who stream young black children into, you know, um, general learning uh, uh, consistently, Um, whether it be police officers who are consistently charged with using excessive force when it's unnecessary, um, employers, private and public, who, um, you know, refuse to hire or promote black people, right? Um, There has to be accountability, but, you know, I think that in this circumstance, I think there is a slight change um, only because um, the, the video of George Floyd in the United States was so graphic. Yeah. I think people were shocked, yeah. but that is not, I don't, the black community was not shocked by that. We were not shocked. Um, and, you know, we had uh, Regis Korczynski Paquette um, and DeAndre Campbell in the last month, both of whom were killed when calls to police were for help for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really troubling and really problematic. And, so, you know, something has got to change. And I think there has to be real political will um, to make the changes that are necessary. So can we talk about the police for a minute then, because there is this, um, you know, I'm hearing it more and more in the last few days, this movement to defund the police. That's a, you know, that idea in and of itself is going to seem very radical to a Mm -hmm. lot of people. Um, Now, what I've read makes sense, but again, this is a big system change. So how do we... um, tackle the issues that are within policing right now? Um, So I think that 
the police do too much, <laughs> right? Um, you know, uh, when we have problems in schools, we call in the police. When we have problems in public health, right, in HIV, and, and the police criminalize in school. When we have problems with public health, you know, or even around HIV, we call in the police, the police criminalize people. When we have problems with mental health and addictions, right, rather than creating safe spaces and investing money in, in harm reduction programs, we call in the police and they criminalize. Um, when we have problems with homelessness, rather than creating um, a climate that allows for people to have access to secure housing, right, we call in the police and we criminalize when we have mental health crises, right? Rather than calling in um, social workers or people who are trained to deal with mental health crises, uh, we call in the police and they criminalize and they harm people. So um, there's a place certainly where I think we have to go that says that the over $1 billion budget that the police have um, um, is bloated, right? And we have to start thinking about the realities of where the, that money um, could make more sense. I think that, you know, the police constantly say, you know, when, when there's kind of back and forth, I hear them say, you know, you want us to do everything. Well, actually, we don't, <laughs> right? Um, they're funded to do everything. We don't want them to do everything, I don't think. I don't want the police coming um, if there's a mental health crisis. I don't want the police in our schools criminalizing our children when really what our children need are um, access to better education, inclusion, you know, education that includes them, um, but I'm sure Nana can also speak to this a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. We've had some discussions in the office because of the, um, the call, right? In the community mm -hmm. right now to defund the police, mm -hmm. but I'm sure Nana can speak a lot to it as well. Yeah, I think when folks are talking about that, I don't, I don't know if they're necessarily talking about an instant abolition. Like I think it's, it, it can be, a gradual process of you know strategically reallocating resources as as Ruth mentioned right so taking away some of the responsibility from the police and putting it towards more community-based models of safety and support and intervention um, and and recognizing you know it's not doing this as a reactionary you know because of this one time we're saying no police do too much as Ruth said and you do too much not very well right like, <laughs> I don't know any other profession where you can consistently um, have poor outcomes and get an increase every single year in funding. Like it really doesn't make a lot of sense. So the police budget, for example, in Toronto, where our office is based, um, you know, right now it's sitting at over a billion dollars. Um, and there was an increase last year. There was an increase the year before, the year before, the year before, despite all of those statistics that Ruth mentioned at the, at the front end, right, about our community being over-policed um, and being killed at disproportionate rates by the police. So um, I, I don't think this is a new concept. I think it's now coming to the mainstream uh, because of the, the things we've been seeing in recent days. But um, I, don't, I, I don't necessarily think it has to be so radical if we think about it as strategically moving money into a pot that could be better used and better served by folks who do this work 
regularly and do it well, right? So, the, so the way you're explaining this is so beautiful. It makes sense. I get it. <laughs> and you know, it, it, this is you're right. We shouldn't be criminalizing homelessness or people with addictions or you know, marginalizing people who are already marginalized, um, going in with a big stick, as it were. Um, so I get that, and I I agree with you on that. So. These rational, calm conversations, though, need to continue to happen because I think what people will hear when you say defund the police is, oh, it's going to be complete lawlessness and we're right. not going to have any law and order and who will, yeah. you know, who, who will go after the criminals. So that's what people will hear. And so there, any sort of a rational conversation, I think, will go out the window, unfortunately, with that. So I hope that people do hear what you just said because it makes perfect sense to me. Um, and so I hope that other people sort of understand that this isn't, you're not looking to dismantle the entire organization. So let's talk within that organization though. What are the numbers of black officers compared to white officers or people of color? Do you have numbers around that? Do you know? I don't have the, I don't have the stats. I don't have that, no. No, I don't even know with that data. You know, one of the things that we push for constantly at Black is um, data collection, right? Disaggregated data collection that will allow us to understand what the actual impact is, um, you know, across different sectors. And um, we often hit a wall mm -hmm. in asking for data, right? Like you saw mm -hmm. in the context of COVID, the chief, mm -hmm. you know, health officer said, I don't see any need for data, mm -hmm. you know, world health, right? And well, Yes, there is a need because the impact um, felt by our community is so significant and we know that and we need to know how to properly allocate resources and why this is. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have data, to be honest, on the number of black police officers. Mm -hmm. Is that because it doesn't exist? I don't know. I don't know if it exists. I don't know if it exists. I have to be completely honest. I don't know. I mean, my gut says that, you know, if, if you know, you were talking about how, how black people are overrepresented over in, in um, prison and, and yeah. places like that, my feeling is they're probably underrepresented within this organization, within the police um, community. I think generally across all sectors, right, across employment sectors, apart from particular areas where... Um, black people are streamed, right? Um, the essential workers, for instance, right? Like, um, you know, our community um, and actually the Asian community as well, if you think about PSWs, like the women and men who are going into long-term care homes and who are in the hospitals, who are the most, you know, some of the most vulnerable, worker, vulnerable workers are you know, black women. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in employment generally, I think uh, certainly in management positions and, you know, like there is a disparity with respect to black representation. Yeah. Sorry. I know what you're going to say, Rico. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just thinking representation is important. And of course, you know, we believe at black, it, it's key, right? But we have a black police chief <laughs> yeah. That's just right it exactly it doesn't, and then people will hold that up as an argument and say well see see yeah. 
I mean, yeah. it's like saying Barack yeah. Obama was president. So there's no, there's no racism. Exactly. And, and that's very dangerous, right? That's very dangerous because when we talk about anti-black racism, we are talking about policies and practices and, and things that anybody, any one of us can um, use against black folks, right? If, if it's about a mentality, it's about the way the policies are enacted and the practices. So the system of policing um, already has those things ingrained in it, regardless of who the actor is, right? Regardless of who the officer is or who the police chief is. So, well, I think um, one of the things yeah. that sort of define helped me define things a little bit better this week was something I read was that you know uh, prejudice is something we all have against you mm. know a group or a person or you know we all have certain prejudices. Discrimination is the action we take based on how deeply ingrained that prejudice is. Mm-hmm. And racism is is a system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, does, is that correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. So mm-hmm. tell me then about what BLACK, the acronym for Black Legal Action Center, how did you come to be and, and what do you do for your community? So I'll talk about how we came to be and then I think can talk about what we do. <laughs> right? Sure. Um, yeah. So... We were formed, uh, there was a recognition, I think, by Legal Aid Ontario that the Black community was underserved within the system. Uh, We um, were formed with an uh, interim board in 2017. The corporation was formed. I was hired in June of 2018 to basically, you know, build up, the, build the organization, hire, find space. Um, and uh, we opened our doors to the public um, in March of 2018. And we are, we are what is called a specialty community legal clinic within the legal system, within the legal clinic system in Legal Aid Ontario. We have an independent a volunteer board of directors who are community members and represent, you know, diversity within our community. They provide us with governance and um, they are a a governance board. Um, We are funded by Legal Aid Ontario and we provide both, our mandate, our specific mandate was to, or is to combat individual and systemic anti-black racism. So we have a hybrid model. Most, a lot of the specialty clinics in legal aid don't deal with individual clients. Um, they do large systemic work, right? We do both um, and we work across the province. So we provide individual legal representation to people who are low or no income and who qualify for legal aid services um, in areas of housing, education, policing, social assistance, um, uh, what else now? I'm trying to remember. And then <laughs> policing, yeah. law, education. Yeah. Did you say education? Yeah. yeah, I did. And then um, we do um, systemic work and systemic advocacy around, um, you know, uh, anti-black racism in education. We do systemic work as well, public legal education, community development, um, and so we have been working now for just over a year. And in that time, we have had funding cuts from the Ford government, a spending freeze from legal aid, <laughs> a slight cut to our budget, um, all in our first year. And now we've entered into COVID. 
and this crisis. So it has been um, an interesting start to um, build, trying to build a new clinic. So you uh, are a little, a little bit more about the actual work that we do, right? You're you're relying heavily at this point on um, donations, I imagine, from uh, private we're funded. Donors? No, we're funded by Legal Aid Ontario. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, we're funded through Legal Aid Ontario. Okay. Okay. So you don't have any fears then, because uh, you, you were mentioning budget cuts and so on. Do you have any fears of, of that you may have to close? None of that right now. Well, I don't know. Um, you know, there were real concerns last year about what was going to happen. Um, we have been promised, uh, you know, our budget for this year was promised prior to COVID. I think we have some concerns about what will happen post-COVID because mm -hmm. our funder is government, right? Mm -hmm. And our funder, you know, also the Law Foundation, and they, I'm not, you know, we have to wait to see whether there is money to continue to fund the legal aid system in the way that it's being funded. Mm -hmm. So there is some concern, yeah. right? Um, we don't know. The, f the future is actually, I think, a little bit uncertain, to be honest. We're not exactly sure what will happen. Okay. Okay. Nana, did you want to address sort of then how, what you're doing in the community? Sure, I can speak a little bit to that. So um, Ruth already mentioned the areas of law that we provide services in to low and low income black people. Um, and in those areas, you know, I'm really proud of the work that uh, we've been able to do in the short time that we've been open. Um, you know, we have a lot of uh, clients from all over the province who um, are trusting us and come to us to provide um, those legal services. So for example, we thought when we opened our doors that um, actually a lot of calls would be about policing and police complaints, just given the history um, of distrust between our community and the police. Um, and not to say that hasn't happened, but we see a huge influx actually of cases around education and the education system. So I think that has been um, a real eye opener, I think for us, um, because we've had to then think a little bit more about how we strategically um, address anti-black racism in the education system. Um, so can and you realizing, give me an, exa an yeah, example? Sure. I would love sure. an example, thanks. Yeah, so um, as Ruth mentioned before, she was talking about the disproportionate streaming that happens in, in school boards for black children. So, um, you know, sometimes a, a teacher or a guidance counselor will, um, you know, encourage a student to go to academic, to go through the academic stream or the applied stream. Um, and for black students, we're realizing that they're actually overrepresented in the non-academic stream, right? So the applied stream. Um, and what that does, it's connected to some of the employment statistics that Ruth was speaking about, right? Um, if you go through the applied stream, you're limited in terms of the educational opportunities you can get post-secondary. Right, and then that will impact your employment opportunities later on. So that's obviously a concern for us. You know, why is it that we're overrepresented? How is that something that we can stop? We are also overrepresented black black students in um, suspensions and expulsions, so in disciplinary measures. Um, so you know, for the same kind of um, actions that may be taken by a non-black student, black students are penalized. Uh, through suspensions or expulsions, um, we also see a disproportionate, um, you know, number in terms of how uh, parents are treated in the system, in the education system, 
So, you know, a, a mother's plea, for example, for her kid to be treated fairly is seen as aggressive and criminal and requiring of sanctions, right? So that parent may be given a trespass order, for example, which means they can't go back to that school for a particular period of time. And so obviously that's very, very hard for, for any parent to deal with, right? When they're just trying to advocate on behalf of their kid. Um, so that, that's just a few examples of what we see in terms of anti-black racism in the education system. And that's one of our key focuses for, um, for this year. Okay, so I, I think that I just wanna make this clear too. So you're not just Toronto-based, then you, you help people all across Ontario. Exactly. Yeah, we are. We have a provincial mandate, and so all Black folks who qualify for our services, um, we do a financial eligibility assessment, um, and we we take them on. We provide free legal services in those particular areas of the law. We don't provide legal services in uh, criminal law, family law, and right now, um, nothing in immigration and refugee. Okay. So, what do you need then, right now? Um, well, okay. Let's break it down this way. What's the What's your top priority right now? And then secondly, how, um, what can allies do to help? It's our top priority. Um, <laughs> so everything. So are, yeah. It's, 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 I realize this is a loaded question. Loaded. We could be here all day. Uh, um, to, to be honest, we are um, a community legal aid clinic our mandate is different to most other clinics. And so most other clinics serve a jurisdiction, right? So um, a neighborhood, right? Um, the uh, systemic clinics do, do just systemic work, right? Um, our funding is, I mean, when you think about it, we are funded for seven full-time employees to deal with anti-Black racism not just in Toronto, but across the province on an individual and systemic level. Seven people can't do that, right? A hundred people probably couldn't do that, right? But the reality is, is that we are woefully underfunded for the work that we are expected to do. So our, our resources are, um, you know, we have to be really strategic, right? Um, we work with, um, you know, there are many communities who have come before us, many community members who have come before us, activists, um, organizations, individuals who are working also under-resourced in the Black community. Mm -hmm. So we form partnerships and we work with them to support them mm -hmm. um, and provide assistance where we can so that our resources are used efficiently we try not to duplicate work that's already being done mm -hmm. um, because we just don't have the resources, quite frankly, to do that. And if you really think about the fact that, um, you know, there are seven, that, that seven people, um, and that includes um, the person who, you know, the in, our intake officer who answers our phone and um, me as the executive director who, you know, deals with kind of the, management of the organization that leaves four people right or you know to 
um, really do the work with the community across the province. It's a little bit preposterous, actually. It is, yes. <laughs> so, yes. Right? If you're breaking you that down, that is, that's just... Yeah, insane. when you break it down, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And, yeah. you know, and, and there are other clinics who serve like a small, you know, and, and, they're, and it's not to say, I mean, everybody's doing amazing work, but I think the, the imbalance um, shows up in the clinic system too. Right. I mean, we have, you know, how many people, how many, 627 or 630,000 black people in the province. Right. And there are seven of us and anti-black racism also doesn't stop at, at where, where income levels change. Right. It doesn't like anti-black racism cuts across class lines. So even though we're charged with just dealing, you know, we're charged with the responsibility to provide assistance to low and no income black communities, we can't be an effective organization if we're not dealing with anti-black racism generally, because it impacts all of us, whether it's a lawyer in a lawyer's lounge or, um, you know, uh, a homeless um, black man on a street corner. It doesn't matter. So resources, I think, are critical. Um, Nana, you can probably speak to something more more substantive, I think, right, with respect to our work and what we, where our priorities are in work. You know? Yeah, I think I think I would I would echo um, what Ruth said, and then also talk about education. I think that that's a huge priority in terms of not just our casework, but also the, um, the systemic piece that we spoke about, right? So challenging in terms of law reform um, or litigation, anything that we can do to kind of um, address the inequity that's happening in the schools. Um, in terms of what allies can do, I think, um, you know, fundraising, uh, donations, those kind of things are really, really, really important and really key for an under, under-resourced organization. Um, as Ruth mentioned, many black organizations are facing this the same thing so um, there's ways to give financially to organizations like ours or some who provide maybe more direct grassroots level services um, mm-hmm. so I think that's really key um, but yeah I think our priority right now is trying to tackle the education system it just it influences so many other systems it's a domino um, effect isn't it it really, really is like child welfare um, employment as we mentioned like everything criminalization like the police the um, criminal system as well right so um, you know it seems like a, an issue that also everybody can get behind like everybody who has a child can kind of understand wow what if my kid was in that situation right so it does seem like a, an issue um, that we could probably get a lot of mainstream support behind as well. Um, and so, yeah, that is one of our, one of our priorities is to look at how we can really make a dent and, and impact the discrimination in the education system. Okay. We only have a minute left then. Uh, I would just like it then if you could please just let people know where they can find you uh, online. Sure, you have so a <laughs> So we have a website? <laughs> yeah, we have a website, and it's um, www.blacklegalactioncenter.ca. And center is the Canadian spelling, right? Yeah, yes, Canadian spelling, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> Most definitely. And okay. Thank you so much, ladies. This is a great conversation. Um, I really appreciate your time, and I hope that we can actually we'll do this again. I'd like to actually get a little bit deeper into the education piece. So uh, hopefully we can arrange another time to do this. 
Thank you, Candace. Thank you so much, Candace. Thank oh, well, you. you can also find us on social media, all social yeah. media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And so what's your handle on those channels? So the Twitter is at laugh underscore Ontario and um, the Facebook and the, what's the other one? Instagram. It's just at black legal action. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you you very much. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.